My name is Steven Johnson. I am married to my beautiful wife, Lauren, and I am the proud father to our daughter, Aubrey. I started attending BlackRock about 10 years ago, and at that time I was certain that I was called to pastoral ministry. And I imagined it to be what typical Sunday preaching and church work and counseling parishioners and all of that kind of thing. Um, but that is not what God had for me. I was working full-time in public safety, and as I was working full-time, I was going to seminary, and somehow God had presented me an opportunity to allow my passion for public safety and my passion for pastoral work to combine. And so I was asked to be a chaplain for a fire department, and I said yes, and that led to uh, years of chaplaining and uh, serving different departments as their pastor. People often ask me, what does a chaplain do? I'm meeting with people, counseling people, I'm going to emergencies, I'm taking phone calls. I mean, you can wake up at three o'clock in the morning, have to be at work for six, and you know, have to respond out for an emergency, and then make yourself fresh and ready for duty at six o'clock to go six to six or seven to seven or whatever it is, and then leave there to go back to the same emergency to follow up with the people that you just met. So I'm on call 24-7, 365. Most of what I do will never be known because everything I do is confidential. So I'm on call for critical incidents. I'm fully trained in critical incident stress management and, and uh, crisis intervention. And so I'm on call for those horrible incidents. That's the smallest amount of what I do. The most of what I do is build relationship with people, enter their lives where they are to meet them at the point of their need. What I found in chaplaincy work is that it's not so much about lights and sirens, it's not about impressive uniforms, it's not about being thanked. It's about being available when someone needs you when no one else is available. And that means that I have to sacrifice the time that I have. But it's not my time, it's God's time. Everything I have belongs to Him. So God has deeply blessed the chaplain ministry. And as it's grown, uh, I met with BlackRock senior leadership and we thought it would be best if we could partner together to accomplish this work because it fits directly in line with what BlackRock wants to do, to love people for the sake of the gospel outside of the walls of the church. And so in May of 2018, I was ordained and uh, now I am the pastor of public safety chaplaincy here at BlackRock. I also assist on the care advisory team and it is my distinct honor and pleasure to bring you God's word today. Good morning. Very good, very good. My name is Pastor Steve. I may have shed a few years, shaved off a few inches, gained a few pounds. Here I am. Now really, I am Pastor Steve, but to avoid confusion here at Black Rock, I'll be known as Pastor Stephen. It is my pleasure to be here with you this morning. A lot has changed in my life since some of the footage in that video. I have a career in management in a new department. I'm off shift work, so I finally sleep. I've expanded to serve more departments. Someone clap for that sleep, thank you, I agree. I'm part-time staff here at BlackRock, and in addition to responding to crises, now working with uh, NGOs, churches, and public safety agencies, crisis management, crisis intervention, to see how we can partner the church with what is happening in that segment of the world. And I'd like to share with you this morning some lessons I've learned from the battlefield in my sermon entitled, Steadfast in Hope, A Biblical View of Suffering. 
I'd like to pray first, though. Heavenly Father, this is your church. This is your bride, and I'm honored to speak this morning. God, I ask that you'd honor yourself. I ask that you would glorify yourself today. Use me as your instrument. May the words be yours. And may we all have hearts to hear, God, what it is you have for us to hear today. And may we walk out if you're more equipped to understand you, to love you, to honor you, and to bring others to know the love that we have in you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I have responded to a plane crash where three children died. I've done CPR on patients while family members watched on in horror. I've presided over the services for an EMT friend of mine who was murdered by her husband. I've held a paramedic friend while his son was taken off life support. I've been the guy that shows up at the door and says, I'm very sorry to tell you this, but your child has died. I've been on scene for suicides, even those of young people. I could tell you stories like these for hours. Every single day I interact with or supervise those who interact with the ill, the neglected, the abused, the intoxicated, the victimized, the addicted, the angered, the depressed, and the forgotten. Suffering is an ever-present reality in our world. What is suffering? For a lot of definitions, the definition I appreciate the most was written by Elizabeth Elliot, and she wrote, it is to have what you do not want or to want what you do not have. Now that seems perhaps a little too simplistic, but I want you to think about suffering in your life as you've known it. Perhaps you've battled a physical ailment, or you've received a troubling diagnosis. This is something that you have that you do not want. Perhaps you're seeking for a job, working to restore your family, or you've longed for a relationship and it's never happened for you. See, these are things you want that you do not have. Those who have lost a loved one, a spouse, a parent, a child, you all know the pain of wanting someone to be with you who can't be with you. Perhaps some of you even here today live with the scars of abuse, neglect, stigma, rejection, something that you wish you never had that has now become part of your life story. You see, the examples are endless, but each of us has experienced our own measure of suffering and sorrow. I know this is true because Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. And I'd like to journey today, and perhaps this might be a little raw, but we're going to do it anyway. I want you now, as we begin the sermon, and this is, perhaps there's a little bit of a valley here. I assure you, there's a mountain on the other side of this. But I want you to reflect upon a time, if ever so briefly, that you've suffered, that you've endured through something, or that you've watched someone suffer, that you love and you cared for, and you were helpless to stop it. Think of a time you said to God, why? Why? Now hear me, not one, not one of those moments, not one of those situations has escaped the attention of God, and not one of them is meaningless. And today we're going to briefly review the suffering of Job, and we're going to draw four conclusions from his life that we can apply to ourselves. 
We'll start off with my first point. Avoid these two poor responses to suffering. And I'm going to go over these two poor responses today. Tim Keller points this out, and I agree with his assessment. There are two pretty poor, inadequate responses to suffering. The first is cynicism, and the second is moralism. Cynicism, or kind of an embittered skepticism, it's a time where we use suffering as ammunition against God. The argument becomes if God is all-powerful, if he's all-loving, then how can he allow suffering? Since suffering exists then, and if God is all-loving and the God of the Bible says that he loves us and he has good plans for us, and suffering exists, then therefore God can't be real. I hear this all the time. And listen, this is an objection to our faith. I don't have time to give a full response to that now. There are people who spend their lives studying this. But just a cursory overview that this response doesn't hold up. It may be an honest response, but the argument can't stand in the presence of a holy God. You see, you can't deny God and then deny objective truth and then deny ultimate meaning and then object to suffering. Upon what basis then do you object to suffering? If we're simply molecules, collections of cells bumping into each other, solely natural mechanistic processes, then suffering is not anything to have feelings about at all. Suffering is nothing more than natural selection. No, we cannot claim to be the God of our own lives, and then when something goes awry, object. Because what basis does it go awry by? You see, we know when things go awry because we know in our hearts how they ought to be. Cynicism is a response, but it's not adequate. Moralism is often the answer of religious types. The religious person says, why is God punishing me? What am I doing wrong? Maybe I need to pray more. Do I need to give more? Do I need to go to church more? I mean, I'm a pastor. The answer is always yes, go to church more. <laughs> but while this is the approach of people uh, more broadly in the religious community, it's, it's a thing in the Christian church too. And I don't mean just BlackRock. I mean like the church in the world is what I'm referencing. There are many in the church now who say, if you're sick, you don't have enough faith. You don't have enough money? Are you struggling financially? Are you tithing enough? Are you giving enough? Are you doing enough? Are you praying enough? Do you have a problem in your life? Do you feel a barrier between you and God? Fix it. It's all on you. This is moralism. The idea that if you do good, you should get good. And if you do bad, you should get bad. Your status on earth is a reflection of your status with your heavenly father. Moralism is based on the idea that God is playing a game of tip for tat, a vending machine of blessing and curses. And if you can just get enough faith to put in the shiniest quarter, then perhaps you'll get a blessing. The book of Job disallows for that view as well. We can't hold either of those views, moralism or cynicism. They're both dead ends. So we're going to start in our text. Let's read in Job 1. And I'm going to fly through this. I have a lot of words and a little time, so I'm going to ask that you stick with me. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, it's a lot of wool, 3,000 camels, it's a lot of spit, 500 yoke of oxen, it's a lot of something and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people in the east. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. 
and they would excuse me, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. He would rise early in the morning, offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Job is a man who has done everything right. He was blameless and upright. He feared God, meaning that he obeyed him. He honored him. He resisted evil and temptation. He had 10 children, a sign of blessing. He possessed numerous cattle and servants, a sign of his extreme wealth. The Bible describes him as the greatest man in all of the East. Family feasts were a regularity. Job was so concerned with righteousness that he'd get up in the morning early, like before everybody else got up, and he would pray and consecrate his children just in case they accidentally sinned and did something they didn't even know about. Job did his devotional, right? This was the guy. But let's read on in chapter one. Now there was a day when the sons of God, this means angels, came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is nothing like him and he is blameless and an upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has in every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you, God, to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now many object here and say, how can this be? Are God and Satan colluding with one another? This kind of goes against like the idea that we have about how this whole thing works. And I understand that response, it's, it's natural, but I'm gonna be honest with you, it's not the right way to look at the scripture here. You see, God put this in the scripture for a specific reason. The answer involves God's sovereign restraint of Satan. You see, it's Satan's idea that these bad things happen. It's Satan's idea, Satan is the one that goes and does it. None of this is at God's direct action. And this aligns with our understanding that God did not create the world to be a place of death, disaster, and disease. These are not things that he directly made. However, God says to Satan, you can only go this far. He restrains him. You see, Satan is a monster, but he's a monster on a leash. And all of this, God remains in control, and only a God allows Satan enough rope to hang himself. You see, here's the paradox. We can't say that God doesn't allow, uh, doesn't, excuse me, you can't say that God can't prevent suffering because that disrespects the sovereignty of God. God is absolutely all-powerful. We're just saying that, all-powerful, all-powerful. But he does not enjoy or delight in our hardship and in our suffering. Satan is allowed by God to bring evil. God hates evil, but he structures it in such a way that it completely defeats Satan's intended purpose for the uh, evil. Romans 8, 28, Paul in Romans, he like, summarizes this perfectly well. You know the verse. He says, and we know in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Listen, there's a certain element of mystery here. I'm not going to solve the problem of evil for you in 25 minutes. But look at Job. He's a good man. 
does all the right things, and on the moralism scale, he should be doing all right. And the book of Job totally undoes all of that. Old Testament believers believe that if you had wealth and status, that was God's favor on you, and if you didn't, that was God's curse on you. The disciples said this to Jesus in John chapter 9. There's a blind man. They said, who is blind? Why is he blind from birth? His sin or his parents? Right? The assumption is automatically there. There must be something he's done. What does Jesus say? No, no one sinned. It's for the glory of God in his life. Jesus says the rain falls on the good and the bad, the just and the unjust. You can't use earthly favor to measure your status with the Lord. That's the first lesson. You can't use your earthly status to measure your status with the Lord. Number two, stop asking why. So if it's not moralism, if it's not the law of this good for good and bad for bad, why then do we suffer? Here's the hard part, guys, as if the rest of it were easy. We don't always get to know why. Job loses his children, his possessions, his status. His marriage is strained. His wife is telling him to curse him, curse God. He loses his health. He goes from the most blessed man in the East to scraping off his infection with shards of clay. And do you know what God never does? He never gives him a reason. He never says, Job, hang in there, bud. You got this. You're going to do it. You don't know this now, but millions of people are going to read about you in my Bible, and they're going to learn about your life, and they're going to grow from you, and they're going to have this amazing experience knowing who you are. Nope. If you've read Job, you know what God says to Job. Look at Job 38. God tells Job, like, embrace, brace yourself like a man. You know what that means? You stand up and be a man, Job. And then he says, I have some questions, and you're going to answer them. And God just begins to pepper him with questions, saying, where were you when I created the world? Where were you when I set the seas in their place? Do you know the anatomy of every animal like I do? Do you know everything that I know? And, and Paul in Romans 9 kind of echoes the same sentiment. He says, does the formed get to ask to the former, why did you make me this way? And listen, I know this seems harsh. In my life, I've kind of accepted I'm not the guy that shows up when good things happen. But as I speak the words, I kind of want to soften the blow for you. I kind of want to make it easier. Because it seems so natural to want to know why. I get it. And you're not hearing from someone who hasn't suffered in his own life. I think God has drawn me to the ministry that I'm in because I've experienced such tremendous pain and sorrow in my own life. And there's times I still look at, go, I look at God and I go, what were you thinking? What were you planning? What were you doing? Why is it this way, God? I don't get it. I don't see it. And I think God gives us the response he gives us, not because he's mean or harsh, but because we have to accept two realities. One, God doesn't owe us explanations. We owe him. He doesn't owe us. He does not owe us an explanation. And two, God knows the why questions don't lead us anywhere. When we go on an adventure to find out why, who do you think becomes the focus of that adventure? Me. You. Who is supposed to be the focus? Jesus. Job never realizes the intended purpose of his suffering. He did not know that millions of Christians would study his life. He just knew his own pain. 
And we need to learn our point number three here is to love God for who God is. Love God for who God is. You know, Satan goes before God and says, Job doesn't love you for who you are. He loves you for what you give him. And I'll admit this is something I struggle with. I'll be on my way to work, like late because it's my fault. And I'll get traffic. This is a glimpse into my life. You can't judge me. That might be a sin. I don't know. And I go, God, you are the Lord of the universe and clearly the Lord of I-95. You can part these seas. You've done it once before. And you can get me to work on time. You are the one that undoes all the hurt and the pain. You turn my morning into dancing. You've lifted my sorrows. Could you please get me to Stratford by four? And then I don't go get there and I go, God, why me? But talk about first world arrogance. I think this is true for a lot of us. If we're honest, we do this. It's impossible to avoid. Really, God's a good father. He gives good gifts. And when you get good gifts from a good father, you kind of get used to that. Every Christmas, full tree. And then the next Christmas, nothing. Hmm. Get used to the blessing. So then we enter into a time of not seeing it, and we wonder, what the heck? But the only way we know that we love God for who he is and not the benefits of knowing him is suffering. Sure, you could say, I'll endure the suffering, but I just want to know why. But if you know why, then you're just enduring for the benefits. When, when serving God gives you nothing and bad things happen to you because of your service to God, that's love. Let me ask you this question. If God never answered a single prayer of yours again, if he redeemed you, saved you, and gave you eternity with him, but never gave you anything else the rest of the time that you were on earth, would you still be a Christian? Would you still pray every day? Would you still open your Bible? And would you still say, though he slay me, still I trust him? You see, if we're not careful, we'll want the throne, but not the God who sits on it. Now listen, I want you to recall the suffering and the sorrow that you experienced or that you recalled earlier in the service. And now I want to pour that memory through a new lens that we just put on. Listen closely. The injury to your heart the unfulfilled longing of your soul, the trauma of the loss you've known, the illness or the disease, the depression or the sadness, whatever it is you recall today, it is not the result of unstructured chaos in the world without supreme control. God was right there with you when you suffered. He was right beside you, very much in control, very much loving you, very much saying, oh child, I know the suffering. I've suffered, I know this suffering. I'm here for you, I'm here for you. This wasn't God in heaven playing tit for tat when you went through your pain. This wasn't his abandonment of you. So right now, I'm gonna ask each of you in your hearts to, to say to the Lord, God, that moment that I thought you weren't there, that recollection, that thing I've been holding on to, that pain that doesn't let go, that when I sit in a room by myself and reflect, it comes back to me, I invite you into that moment. You were already there, but now I ask you to make me aware of your presence in my pain. And as you invite God into your pain, recognize his sovereignty in your own sorrow. Ask him for forgiveness for any demands or attempts at manipulation you've made of him. Be honest, but surrender your right to know why. Knowing why might be easier for us, 
But God, we give off that right to know why. Help us with our unbelief. Increase our faith. If I don't get to know why on earth, I will still praise you. Though you slay me, still I will trust you. And then we have to ask the Lord to forgive us for the times that we've loved him only for what he's given us and not simply for who he is. I want you to even do this now. Take some time in your hearts. Speak to the Lord. I'll join you. I'll say that God forgive me for my self-idolatry, that at times I draw near to you just because I want to feel good or just because I want a blessing. Enable me to love me for, love you rather, God. See, that's it. Enable me to love you for who you are because you are worthy of love. If you don't do another good thing for me, you're still good. And view your suffering, the final point for today, with eternal eyes. You see, even if he doesn't do another good thing for you, he's still good, but God just loves to do good things for you, so he keeps doing them. And he says to you, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you, what's the verse? What is it? Yeah, claim that, right? I'll give you rest. The enemy has come to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come to give them life and life to the full. You see, listen to this. Paul was taken to the highest heavens and listen to his reaction after comparing the highest heaven, seeing the throne where God dwells, and then comparing his earthly experience of suffering daily, facing death daily, being beaten daily, daily being exposed to such persecution and suffering that any of us, most of us, will go, God, why? Listen to Paul. He says, we are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not abandoned, struck down, not destroyed, we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our bodies. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, inwardly we're being renewed day by day. Hear this. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs it all. So fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Paul says that all of your suffering, all of your misery, and the path of obedience to Jesus Christ is producing for you eternal glory. How so? Because those of us who remain steadfast in obedience to Christ, who persevere to the end, are promised eternity with him. And this eternity is so great that all the pain, all the sorrow doesn't even compare. You're not home. You're just on your way home. Paul says that heaven is so real, so wonderful, so perfect, that when he faces death, he does not lose heart. No, I'm not trivializing your suffering. I'm not saying it's not meaningful. I'm saying the opposite. I'm saying it's all meaningful. And I'm saying that God is with you in this. But the servant's not greater than the master. Jesus was a suffering servant. We will suffer too. But ladies and gentlemen, do you remember the resurrection? What did Jesus have on his hands? What did he have? Scars. The earthly suffering was marked on his hands. Thomas said, let me see his hands. Let me see his side. Look at these crosses. You're probably wearing them on your neck and on bracelets and all that. 
Do you know what that is? That's a sign of sorrow, torture, and death. But when we see it, what do we see? Hope. We see eternity. You see, it is through Jesus' suffering that we enter into eternal rest. And in doing so, the purposes of Satan are totally undone. And now we have reconciliation with God. And likewise, our suffering is meaningful, earning us eternal reward, pushing us to God the Father. The last step in your life, I'm sorry, <laughs> that's the wrong phrase. The last step in today, may it not be the last step in your life, <laughs> is to say, God, use my sorrow, use my suffering in my life to bring you glory. Because it's not just your spiritual gifts that build the church. It's also how you allow God to use your pain, to use your story, to use what's happened for his glory. Keep your eyes on eternity. When you experience suffering, remain steadfast in hope. Don't lose heart. View your suffering with eternal eyes. Love God for who God is, not for what he gives you. Stop asking why and rest in the presence of your heavenly Father. You know, in May, we're gonna be having an awesome opportunity here for those of you who wanna enter the suffering of other people and to bring them the joy and the gladness that God has taken from your morning. And we're gonna have free classes here brought to you by Caleb. And it's the first step if you're interested in, in doing this kind of work. So it's in brc.church, it's in your bulletin for further information. But if this is something you're going, oh my gosh, this rings true for me. I want, to, I want to move through this and I want to help others do it too. That would be a great next step. We want to thank you for watching and listening to our sermons online. And we hope that uh, you will be inspired to live more like Jesus through these. Please check out blackrock.org for more information about our church. Know that you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. And also, uh, know that you can give uh, to BlackRock and to our ministry through PushPay, through our mobile app, and on our website. Your uh, donations and your support of our ministry allows us to have uh, these videos online and for us to impact our community.